ago, leading up to the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, my husband Danny and I were wondering about what we could bring to our family gathering out in Abbotsford. We were all going to be having Thanksgiving dinner together. And I'm not sure how your families work, but Danny, who's part American, has always been really irked that Canadians don't make a bigger deal of Thanksgiving. Now, to be fair, my family once ordered Chinese food for Thanksgiving, so we had a long way to go. But, God bless him, because of my husband, we now, every year, have a full, proper Thanksgiving meal. And because the last couple of years, he and I have done the meat, we figured we'd handle the dessert this year. One of our neighbors had just recently, and very generously, given us a big box of Spartan apples, and so we figured we'd make a couple of homemade apple pie. Little did we know that the turkey would have been easier. <laughs> Still to this day, I don't know what we did wrong. Somehow, two very tasty apple pies came out of the whole experience by God's grace alone, I guarantee you. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the filling that was the problem. It was the pie crust. And I know, people have told me, you know you can buy like pre-made pie crusts, but that, that feels like cheating. It's sort of like when you bring like a pre-made salad package to a potluck, which admittedly I've done twice. <laughs> so, of course then, we had never made a pie crust before, so you know, we go on Google and we you know, find a good pie recipe and we pull all the ingredients together and, and hope that it would all turn out fine. And, and on our first batch was great. Nice, soft, malleable, shapeable. We were able to smush it into the pie pan, put the filling in, have a covering, and then ta-da, it was great. But then our second batch, and I, I still don't know what happened, was the total opposite. It was rock hard. And I remember trying to you know, take a rolling pin to it and I barely made a dent in the thing. And, and the stupid dough was so tough and so unshapeable. And if you tried to pull it apart, it would just break and crumble. I tried to add this and that to it to make it work, but ultimately, it just wasn't able to be used. So naturally, we blamed it on the dough and started over. But that, that is a little bit like what the people of Judah in Israel during Jeremiah's time had turned into. Stubborn, firm, hard-hearted, an unusable hunk of dough, no longer able to be used for the purpose for which it had been created. And similar to what I just did here with you, God actually used an analogy, a symbolic gesture to get this point across to Jeremiah. And we read this in chapter 13. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 13. Uh, for those of you that um, are guests here, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Jeremiah titled Finding God in the Wilderness. So we're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 13, and we'll be going from verses 1 to 11, and the words will also be up on the screen. Give a couple more seconds for you to turn. All right. Hear these words. Starting at verse 1. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt, as the Lord directed, and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. 
Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perith and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and hid it at Perith as the Lord told me. Verse 6. Many days later, the Lord said to me, Go now to Perith and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perith and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was completely, it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Judah, all the people of Israel, and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they have not listened. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so this kind of narrative actually happens quite frequently in our prophetic books, mostly in the major prophets, where God uses um, an image, a symbol, a, a gesture to try to get a point across to his people. So here, he asks Jeremiah to do something that will symbolize the word that he's trying to give to the people of Judah. He instructs Jeremiah to buy a belt. And we're not talking here about, you know, a modern-day belt that Jeremiah will use to keep up his prophetic pants. The word in Hebrew implies um, either a kind of undergarment that you would wear under your robe, your main attire, or a sort of waistband or sash that, that ties around a person's waist and can actually occasionally like hold things. Um, but it was meant to be pre predominantly decorative, which is more likely the case in this situation. So God tells Jeremiah then to buy a linen waistband, which would have been a fairly attractive piece of clothing, actually. Because, you know, prophets didn't wear fancy clothes. Jeremiah's Sunday best would have been similar to something like how you probably picture John the Baptist, right? Wearing, you know, this coarse kind of material, a, a, a sort of a, a robe of, of some kind with a cloak of hair over top. Um, maybe like a leather belt going across, like nothing super attractive, very simple, very bland. To then add a, a fine piece of linen around his waist would have, been putting a, would have been like putting a diamond leather belt around sweatpants. Okay? It just wouldn't have made sense. But linen was the material that priests and nobility would wear. And since Jeremiah came from a priestly family, people might have thought that maybe he was picking up his old job back again. Like, finally, Jeremiah's come to his senses, and he's giving up on this whole weepy prophet of doom thing. But then God instructs him to take off the beautiful waistband that he's just bought and to go hide it in a crevice in Paris among the rocks. And many days later, he's told to go back and get it. But by this point, this beautiful waistband is completely shocked. Stained, frayed, rotting, smelly. I can just feel those of you that work with textiles squirming in your seats. Why would you do this to a beautiful piece of material? Why? It was completely, verse 7, it was ruined and completely useless. What's God trying to say? Well, he uses this picture, this analogy, this symbol of the waistband to explain 
that this is what will happen to the people of Judah and Jerusalem who refuse to listen to him and follow the stubbornness of their own hearts to worship other gods. He says he's going to ruin them, ruin them like this waistband, by ruining their pride. What kind of pride is he talking about? Well, like we've said in previous weeks, the pride that Judah had in the institution of Israel. Their pride in their identity, their trust in their now idol-filled temple, the trust that they had in their fancy temple and in their oh-so-desirable land, the things that made them noticeable to the other nations. This was what they put their trust in, and this is what they prided in. He's going to ruin this pride by taking them away from those things, which is often the only way to do it. See, again, for Israel, this constant rebellion away from Yahweh and the pursuit of other gods and other ways of being religious simply seemed far more interesting to them, much more attractive to them than obeying an invisible God who only wanted him to follow, who only wanted them to follow his ways. That wasn't very interesting. How horribly limiting that must have been compared to what all the other nations were doing. A lot of the, the surrounding nations in Israel um, or around Israel actually looked at them, and, and this actually happened to the Christians down the road as well. All the other nations would often look at Israel as a kind of atheist nation. And they, of course, didn't use those terms. They didn't use that kind of terminology. But Israel was criticized for having an invisible God without an image. The temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be different than any other temple because of the simple reason that it didn't have an idol. It didn't have an image of the God inside. But here's the thing. Every temple in the ancient world had an image. A plethora, usually, of idols and images. A giant statue of the God representing that God's presence. The people needed to see, in other words, the God that they were worshiping. Many temples were, were like a museum of different gods put on display, and you could come in and go to whichever God you needed at that particular time. Usually there was the main God, but then there were others as well, and they had household gods in their own homes. You know, if I need to pray about this, I go to this God. If I want this right now, I go to this God. They could come and pay their dues to whoever they needed or wanted at the time. They would be looking at the people in Jerusalem and saying, wait, you don't even have an image of your God in your temple? <laughs> What's the point? Your temple is imageless? What are you worshiping if you can't even see him? But as we know, Yahweh's people, God's people, were commanded to never worship an image, a golden calf, a, a statue, or a depiction of him, or any other god for that matter, to never fall into that temptation because it would completely unravel the truth of his true image. What's God's image? What did God want his image to be? What did God, who is spirit, not material, so you couldn't make an image of him even if you wanted to, 
What did he want his image to be? The answer to this question is the heartbeat of God's whole missional endeavor in Scripture. Who did he want his image to be? Us. Us. Human beings who worship him as his people and can therefore demonstrate who he is. Judah was tasked. All of Israel was tasked with bearing God's image, representing God's, God in other words, to the surrounding nations. Which is why God says to Jeremiah in verse 11, For as a belt is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. He wasn't going to campaign for himself, in other words. That was Israel's job. And the word there for for bound means to cling, to be close to, to, to hold fast to something or someone. God's intention with Israel was that they would so cling to him in trust and dependence. They would be so bound to him that they would be like a beautiful item of clothing showing off his splendor so that the other nations would look at them and be attracted to the God that they belonged to, the God that they were bound to. And this is all over the Old Testament. Look at what Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4. Observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who hear about these decrees, God's decrees, and say, surely this is a wise and understanding people. Their behavior, their ways of living, were to be shown off to the nations. The whole point was that other nations would look at them and be, wow, that looks different. That's really wise and understanding. Huh. It's all over the Psalms. Psalm 96, for example. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the people. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In other prophetic books, in Zechariah 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem, of all places, to seek the Lord Almighty. This is what was supposed to happen. And later in Jeremiah, God says this, I will cleanse them from all the sin they've committed against me. Then, then, (laughs) this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. Israel was never meant to be Israel for itself. It was always for the blessing of the other nations. Israel's purpose was to bless the nations with the wisdom and knowledge of the true God and to draw them to this God that they worship. But this this framework, this story, this worldview wasn't exciting enough for them. It wasn't perhaps insular enough. enough, There wasn't enough focus on on them and what, what they wanted. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear that all Israel really wanted was to be like the other nations. 
So instead of wanting to have an impact or an imprint on them, they wanted the other nations to have an impact on Israel, on themselves. And God tried over and over and over again to get his people to listen, to respond to, this, to his prodding, to, to react appropriately to his, his needing and his molding and his shaping, but they were just too hard, too stubborn, too unteachable, unmoldable. Idolatry will do this to us, right? We get so caught up in our own ideas of what's good and healthy, what matters to us, our own ways of thinking, that we're no longer teachable, moldable. We, we, we trust in our own thought patterns, our own ideas, our own habits and patterns, and we don't want anyone telling us different. We don't want to feel limited. We don't want to feel like there's only one track for us. We don't want that. We want options. Israel wanted options. But for Israel, it meant that they had become unwearable, which wasn't the purpose for which they were made. When other people looked at Judah, they were supposed to see God. Isn't that crazy when you really think about it? When people looked at Judah, they were supposed to see God. When they looked at the, the belt or the waistband, they were supposed to see the one to whom the belt was bound. But their own pride kept them from being useful for this purpose. They didn't want to be someone else's glory. They wanted to be their own. They wanted to look not like God, but like everyone else to have a hollow image representing their God because it was, frankly, too much work, maybe, to be his image themselves. Eugene Peterson once made this comment about Judah in a book about Jeremiah. He says, I don't, I don't think that they're trying to get by with anything. He says, I, you know, I don't think Judah's trying to get away with anything here. I think that they've just lived for so long on the basis of outward appearances, you know, what others think about them, that they just have no feel for inward reality, which was what being God's image was all about. Israel and Judah had lived for so long in a world of outward appearance, of how they looked, what others saw, how they compared with the other nations, how, how they could look more better and more attractive, that they'd lost completely all touch with any sense of inwardness of inward transformation. They had become what they worshipped. As we've talked about in previous weeks, in worshipping hollow images, they became hollowed out themselves. There's an image um, that I found recently online, and I, you might know this, the, you know, the, there's usually the three monkeys, the, and it's a, a Japanese proverb, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Well, apparently the fourth ape has been found. The sum of the first three, he sees nobody, hears nobody, and speaks to nobody. And the idea of this image is that it's sort of, this is what we've come to now of, because of, well, in this image it's because of cell phones. Perhaps this is a modern day version of how we've hollowed ourselves out. We are so distracted by the other world, the other world that we're not a part of, that we actually no longer see, hear, or speak. We don't seek to have inward transformation. Perhaps this is a modern, what modern idolatry looks like. I know for myself that 
when I feel hollow or, or hollowed out, what's often the case is that my life has become so distracted that I'm idolatrously, really, starting to be defined by two things. Busyness and rushing, where I'm so distracted away from caring from, for my own soul that I feel like I've actually left it behind somewhere because I'm trying to achieve and accomplish and fulfill expectations and rush and rush and rush so that that's actually a value in my life. And two, I'm so distracted away from Christ that I'm actually starting to form an identity apart from him. Peterson continued on to say that, that similarly for us, we live in a culture where image is everything and substance actually nothing. We live in a culture where a new beginning is far more attractive than a long follow-through. Images are important, beginnings are important, but an image without substance is a lie. A beginning without a continuation is a lie. And, and to sum that up, what he's saying is, you know, new beginnings and, and new initiatives are good, but when everything is about new beginnings, new initiatives, constant innovation, fast-paced, record speeds, Right? There's speed dating, there's fast food, there's immediate satisfaction. Ultimate efficiency is always the goal. How can I do this in this amount of time? How can I get this and this and this and this done so that I look good in this amount of time and then look even better? The hamster wheel that just keeps spinning and spinning and ultimately ends up going nowhere actually because it's to the detriment of our own souls. Combine that, then, with a constant questioning of image, right? Of, of proving oneself, of never feeling enough or adequate, of always being compared or comparing oneself to, to someone else, of needing to be in vogue, to, to fit in, to be relevant, to keep up appearances, to present well. Can you think, and I guarantee you, every single one of us can do this, can you think of somewhere in your own life where this might be the case for you? We all fall into that temptation of caring about image. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that caring about that is what actually gives my life substance. It does temporarily. New things are exciting and getting admired and applauded for image is fulfilling. But it's only temporary. We'll always need the next thing, the next high, in order to feel that substance. It is kind of like an addiction. We grow a tolerance for good feelings, for good emotions. We continue to just need more and more and more of them, that eventually we actually, we've hollowed ourselves out so much that those fillings are no longer enough. We just can't eat enough apple pie. It's never enough. The rushing never ends, no matter how quickly we try to go. The identity searching never ends, no matter how greatly or diversely we try to improve ourselves. It's only when we get to that point of asking, is this it? Is this all that I was made for? That we actually search for a long-lasting sort of substance a kind of apple pie filling outside of this world. 
C.S. Lewis once said in his book, Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was actually made for another world. Another purpose, perhaps. And once we've realized that, that as the song puts it, we were made to live for so much more, then slowly what actually happens is that we begin to bind ourselves back to the God who created us, who's wooing us over and over and over to consider that we weren't actually made to obsess over our own image, but rather to bear His. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 when He talked about being a light on a hill. You don't hide it under a shade. You don't hide it under a bowl. Instead, you put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. And he said to them, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify you. And glorify you for the light that you're shining. No! And glorify your Father in heaven. Live this way. Shine your light so that it brings glory to the one to whom you are bound. Not to yourself. See, Jesus links the glory of the Father to the brightness that we shine with. The light that we can shine as followers of Christ is a light that points to the light source. And what's interesting now is that for those of us, for we, who are in Christ. The language is no longer about God cloaking himself with us, but rather that we are cloaked with Christ. Look at Galatians 3. Paul writes this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And he goes on to say that because of this there is neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Why are we all one in Christ? Because we are all wearing the same thing. The book of Revelation talks about the saints being clothed in white robes while worshiping before the throne. So whereas Jeremiah was tasked with buying and wearing a priestly belt and discarding it to symbolize Israel's failure, we are called to receive a priestly robe of white to symbolize Christ's victory. That's what we wear. We don't wear a symbol of failure. We wear a symbol of victory. We wear Jesus. When the Father looks at us, he sees the innocence of Christ because Jesus' atoning blood has completed the cycle of God's wrath The prison clothes have been thrown out and all that's left in the closet are priestly robes of white waiting to be worn. And not only does being clothed in Christ imply our innocence and forgiveness in him, but it also amplifies the reality that we are bearers of his image. We are wear the victory of Jesus. And that's both an identity marker and a mission marker. It's both who we are and what we do. 
So do you see the, the train then of image bearing here? We represent Christ, and it is Christ who represents God. He's now become the mediating factor. Look at what Colossians, Colossians 1 puts it this way, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image of God. He's the perfect representation of God. He is the image of God, and we are now the image of Christ. When people look at us, spirit willing, they see Jesus. And through Jesus, they see God. They see Jesus. They see his image and his reflection. And really, what, what greater meaning, what greater purpose, what greater honor is there in life than representing Christ? Because what this means, what this means is that we can be Jesus for one another. It's the great mystery of our union with Christ that we can, by His Spirit, manifest His presence to others. It also means then that, if this hasn't been made clear already, that we weren't meant to fit in. I hate to break it to you, but we weren't meant to fit in. Israel's prideful pursuit of image and attraction in the eyes of the other nations ironically kept them from actually being attractive. They didn't look any different. As we've said before, they, they actually looked worse. Fitting in means that you don't stand out. And since we're so often afraid of standing out or, or looking strange, we actually prefer to fit in. To sort of, you know, be myself, be ourselves, be our own image within the parameters of what our context says is relevant. We'd rather be relevant. But this creates its own kind of wilderness because we're not actually allowing the spirit within us to define who we are. If we're constantly searching within ourselves for purpose and meaning and value, I'm sorry, but like, you don't go anywhere. You don't go anywhere. It never ends. We're filling ourselves with substance then that's only temporary and not transcendent. We hollow out our own souls in the pursuit of other people's values, which really is what it ends up being. We hollow out our relationships because we're only worrying about ourselves. We hollow out our sense of purpose because we're never satisfied. But we are not hollow images of wood and stone waiting to be filled by other people's desires and criticisms. We are living, breathing image bearers filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We bear His image. We live then knowing that He has given us a great dignity and honor to do this task, but with the full understanding that we can't do this on our own. Israel was meant to be so intimately linked with God that they would cling to him like clothes to a human body. Now that we have Christ, 
we've found out that he has so intimately linked himself with us that we're already cloaked with him. We already have him. He has made it very clear that he wants to be associated with us. He wants us to be his image bearers, his representatives, his hands and his feet. Why this is the case is perhaps the greatest mystery on earth. But as we've said before, there is no one like our God. As we've sung before, there is no God like Jehovah. There is no one like Jesus. Do people see him when they encounter you and me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, perhaps, perhaps our greatest cry this morning is that we would understand the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's a very daunting task, and it's one that we don't often feel like we do very well to represent you, to stand out as a people who are called by your name, who are wearing your goodness. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. So we pray this morning that you would remind us of the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us, to transform our desires, to transform the ways that we think and look at the world, the way especially that we see others around us. Help us, Jesus, to manifest your presence to them, to know your heart for others around us that we may be your people for your joy, for your glory, for your renown and honor. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.